Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is our psalm of the month, and if you're new to the congregation or you're a visitor here, what we do is we go through a psalm uh, each month. We take uh, one Lord's Day morning to preach through a psalm, and so this is a survey of the psalms that we might sing our psalms, which are the, the songbook of the church, with the understanding also as the apostle exhorts us in 1 Corinthians 14, 15. And today we come to this great and magnificent uh, psalm that proclaims the royal priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so as you turn there in your copy of God's Holy Word, uh, let us now hear this word as it comes to us from the Holy Scripture, and let us give our attention to it as it is the very Word of God. Psalm 110, these are God's words. A psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray for the preaching. Our Father and our God, we come to this magnificent psalm that has so many truths that a single verse would take a lifetime to exposit in its fullness. Nay, an eternity, Father, we could have before us and we uh, we would never be able to exhaust this psalm. And so, Father, we pray that you would still add your blessings to the preaching of the word, that we would capture some of the magnificence here of the Son of God as the mediator king, that we would bow down before God, uh, the Son, in the preaching of the word, For this greatly glorifies you. So we pray now for the minister who preaches that he would be a servant of the king over all. That he would be a servant of Christ discharging his duty as uh, uh, Christ's herald this morning. And we pray for the congregation as well that the spirit of God would be upon them. We pray that both minister and congregant would decrease. That something of the glory of Jesus Christ would increase in our hearts. That we would see Christ in His radiance and glory, and we would have such great assurance, hope, and love in that, that by the Scriptures, we would have comfort, hope, and uh, assurance. So, Father, in the preaching of the Word now, we pray that You would glorify Thy Son, Jesus, that Thy Son also may glorify Thee. And we ask this in His name, for His sake. Amen. Well, in a wondrous providence on this new year, We come to Psalm 110 on the first day of a new year. Psalm 110 being a psalm that proclaims the mediatorial dominion of Jesus Christ. It's a psalm that prophesied that the Messiah would have all authority in heaven and in earth. What's beautiful about that is that in God's providence, our calendar testifies to the truth that is found in our psalm. Boys and girls, do you know what uh, year it is today? Today being a new year. It is 2023. I heard somebody say that. But that's shorthand, isn't it? We often just remember the year and we just put the number there. But if you expressed it fully, what would it be? It would be AD, AD 2023. And we forget what those abbreviations mean. In fact, the, today the world is refusing to teach it to you. But AD is the Latin abbreviation for Anno Domini, isn't it? And what does that mean, boys and girls? It means the year of our Lord. The year of our Lord. And so the fullness of this year on this first day is the year of our Lord 2023. And it would be beautiful if you remembered every day, every year that way. If every day when you signed your check or whenever you looked at the calendar, what day is this? This day is such and such year of our Lord whether it's 2023, whether it'll be 2024, or on the last day when you die, it is still the year of your Lord, and it will be until He returns. 
Our calendar reflects the truth of God's word that this world is presently under the mediatorial dominion of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Not just as God, but as the God-man who rules over all things for the sake of his church. That's why the calendar made the flip. God has always ruled over the earth, but now we recognize the God-man. Jesus Christ, Son of God, rules over the earth. That's a dominion he received when he ascended and was seated at God's right hand. And so, if you hear in the Reformed Presbyterian Church, we're prone to speak with this term. We speak of mediatorial kingship, or really better, I think, was the older term for it, which is mediatorial dominion. This is what we mean. That the Son of God, as the God-man, rules over everything. And to understand this doctrine will greatly glorify the Jesus that suffered for you, church. It will fill you, his church, with assurance And it will remove anxieties. Whenever you open up the, well, you don't probably do this anymore, the newspaper, or you turn on the television, or you open up the news feed, whatever it is, all your anxieties will be erased if you understood this doctrine. And so it is with that understanding that we must sing this as a psalm of praise to Christ. And with this aim in view then, our theme is simply Christ's mediatorial dominion. Christ's mediatorial dominion. And we'll consider this dominion of his under three heads on your bulletin. The first is that his mediatorial dominion is over all things. And so we we learn the extent of Christ's kingship. Second, it is for the church. And so we learn its purpose. And third, we will see that it is unstoppable. And so we will learn patience. First, Christ's mediatorial dominion is over all things. Well, for some context for this psalm, and as I've already alluded to in the prayer, this is a rich psalm. We are no way going to be able to exhaust. But its inspired title, and the title is inspired, it's part of the Hebrew scripture. Its inspired title shows that this is a psalm of David. David, you remember King David, what did he receive? He received a covenantal promise from God that God would seat the son of David on an everlasting throne. And so this is a very important thing to know that this is a psalm of David. He promised to David in Psalm Second uh, Samuel rather 7:13 of David's son, "He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." And while Solomon did build an earthly temple for God, and his throne was set over Israel, Solomon was just a prefiguring, wasn't he, of David's greater son, Jesus Christ? Who builds what? Not a house made of physical material, but he builds the house of God, the church. And he has an everlasting throne in the heavens. And you think of other Psalms where David thinks on his son to come. Psalm 72, uh, God promised to David of his son, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. And he said in that same Psalm, Psalm 72, yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall, shall serve him. And his name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. This is clearly not Solomon. This is clearly Jesus Christ that is being prophesied of. And here then, in like manner, in Psalm 110, we find David prophesying of his son. The Messiah to come. And that's how the Jews understood the psalm. This was a psalm concerning David's son, the Messiah, to come. And that's where we pick this up in the Gospels, isn't it? Do you remember Matthew 22? You might want to turn there, if you would, in your copy of God's Word. Maybe turn to Matthew 22. In any case, I will read the Scripture to you. But I think it would be very helpful if you, uh, if you turn there in your copy of the Scriptures. Matthew 22, and we'll pick up the reading in verse 41. And if you remember what was going on here, You remember, Jesus once asked the Pharisees that penetrating question. What think ye of Christ, whose son is he? Now, Christ, of course, boys and girls, means Messiah. So he's asking, what think ye of the Messiah, whose son is he? And so we pick up in verse 41, where this question is asked. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ, whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. Yeah, very good, right? This is right. This is true. But then what does Jesus say? He saith unto them, How then 
Doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, and here comes Psalm 110, verse 1, which we have read. How does David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. And here's the question. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. What was Jesus doing when he cited Psalm 110 verse 1? He brought up a question the Pharisees did not want to meditate on, which is how, how is it that David's son could possibly in any way be David's Lord? Right? You know, a king's son is not his superior. Right? The son of a king is not superior. He's the prince. Right? He's not the Lord of the king. That's backwards to think of it that way, right? If a king's son was his superior. Yet, David prophesied that his son, the Christ, would be his own Lord. And Jesus is saying, you must grapple with this. You must understand this. It must be understood. How do we understand this? I think the key is found, right? There are many places the key is found. But here's one with John the Baptist, right? When he said in John 1.15, this was he speaking of Jesus of whom I spake, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now what's odd about that, obviously, is that John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus, isn't he? Even though John is older, he said Jesus was before him. How is that? Because Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took on the nature of man. And in the same way, Jesus uses Psalm 110 to show that Christ is not just David's son in the flesh, but that he preceded David and was David's Lord because he is God's son. Whose son is he? The answer is supremely God's son, the second person in the Trinity. That's why he asked, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And do you notice how Jesus is making his enemies his footstool even here. The Pharisees refuse to give an answer. Why? They know exactly where this is going to lead, don't they? It would lead them to bow down before Christ as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, which tells you and shows you that sin is in no way rational. Right? You don't want to go where the evidence will take you, which is to Jesus, unless he makes you willing in the day of his power, which we will get to in this very psalm. So returning to verse 1, the Lord here in Psalm 110. So we're back in Psalm 110. In verse 1, the Lord, all caps Jehovah, said unto my Lord, small caps Adonai, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So now understanding that this is speaking of the Son of God, the pre-incarnate, eternal Son of God, what you find here is the distinguishing of the persons of the Godhead. Jehovah speaks to Adonai. The Father speaking to the Son. Two different persons of the Trinity here. Both pre-existent, both co-eternal. One to the other. And what the Father is telling the Son is He's saying, Be seated here at my right hand. What is the right hand of God? What is the right hand of any king? It is the place of preeminence, isn't it? It's the place of honor. And what does being seated signify? It is the posture, essentially the Father saying, sit on your throne, sit on your throne. It's the posture of dominion. For instance, 1 Kings 3.6 says, thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne. You see that? To be seated is a place of authority and power. But then comes the puzzle, right? If the Messiah, as we established, is God the Son, and boys and girls, you know this from your catechism, same in substance, right? Equal in power and glory. Same in substance as Father and Holy Ghost, equal in power and glory to the Holy Ghost and Father as well. Why in the world must the Son of God be given a throne? Does he not possess a right to the throne? Does he not have the, the, the right to sit on the throne as God? Of course, as God, he has the right. The, the answer to the puzzle is the incarnation, though. After his incarnation, what do we know? And we've considered this many times. The Son of God's divine nature is united to a human nature, right? And that was necessary, why? So that he would be our mediator, right? That's why he is the God-man, in order to save us, in order to reconcile us to God. 
And did he, after he did his work on the cross, did he sort of slough off his human nature and say, well, I'm done. I'm done with that. I guess I'm done with it. No. Praise God for that. Otherwise, we can't be saved. And praise God, he loves loves, uh, men that much that he would be united to the nature of man. But he retained his human nature. He was resurrected, wasn't he, in the human nature. And he ascended in the human nature. And that means for all eternity, he will be both God and man in one person. The God-man. And so whenever you hear the word mediator and you think of uh, the Son of God as the mediator, you need to think of Christ as the God-man. As the God-man. And so if you ever hear of us refer to the doctrine of Jesus as the mediator king or mediatorial king, all we mean is that mediatorial means that we refer to Jesus as the God-man. He is the God-man king who is over all. The Son was enthroned as God-man over all things for our sake. Think on this. After his resurrection, maybe this is a, a tricky question, boys and girls, so think on it carefully. When Jesus ascended into heaven, which of his two natures ascended? The human nature. His divinity is everywhere. He doesn't need to ascend. So he ascends bodily, doesn't he, in his human nature. The ascension account in Mark's gospel sums up all of what I'm trying to say. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Where are you hearing that? That's Psalm 110, isn't it? Mark 16, 19. That's where Psalm 110, 1, it was fulfilled. Sit thou at my right hand. Jesus, as God-man, was crowned. He was set at God's right hand and seated on heaven's throne. Friends, the reason our calendar has changed and so we speak of Anno Domini, is a profound change happened in the governance of the universe that day. And we don't think of how profound it is. There is a human nature that now sits on the throne, united to divinity in the person of the Son of God. That's a profound thing, friends. There is a very human heart that beats on God's throne right now. It was never that case until the ascension. Never so until the ascension. And what a thing that is, that that he who has a feeling of our infirmities now holds the rod of God's power. Right? He who once died for you, believer, now rules over all things for who? For you and for me. The blessedness of that thought ought to capture your hearts and your minds. Now just think of the truth of it in the book of the Acts. Consider the appearances of God in heaven in the book of the Acts. What do you find? Seated now at God's right hand is the incarnate Jesus Christ. When Stephen is stoned, it is Jesus, his Savior, who arises to give him honor. When Saul is on the road to Damascus, it is Jesus, the church's Savior, that speaks out of heaven. And what do we hear of the ruler of the cosmos? His affinity with his people is so great that his words to Saul are, Why persecutest thou me? That is because the God-man is seated on the throne. That he counts as the head of his body. All injuries against his body are counted as injuries against himself. The God-man, king and head of the church with utter dominion. And you see that. Don't you see that he was touched with the plight of his people? Why do you persecute me? Church, there is no better king for us as a suffering people than a king who has also suffered as man. This is the blessedness of Christ's mediatorial dominion. And this dominion was prophesied in Daniel's seventh chapter. And this is where we see more of that prophetic mediatorial dominion. Daniel 7.13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. So if you remember the ascension account in the book of the Acts, he comes up, disappears in the cloud, and came to the Ancient of Days, meaning the Father. And they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. Why? That all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, meaning the church, that which shall not be destroyed. You see that? Why is it that the, uh, that Jesus, the risen savior, the God man, mediatorial king confronts Saul? Because it is his kingdom that shall not be destroyed. 
And he will take care of any enemy that comes against his church, even converting them to become friends of the church as the Apostle Paul. And so what we see in places like Daniel, we see in Psalm 110, we see in the Ascension account, is that while the Son has always had dominion over the world as God, his, this dominion is bestowed on him as God-man. Which is why, and sometimes you might be puzzled by this when you think of Jesus as God, but maybe now the pieces are becoming clear. This is why Jesus said at the end of Matthew 28 that all power, and that word means authority, under heaven and earth has been given unto me. This is that dominion he received. And what's the use? Go, spread the gospel. Go into every nation without fear, because I, the God-man, rule over it all. And he says, go, make disciples. Go, baptize them. Go, because I rule for the church in heaven above. And again, Paul had to reckon with that on the road to Damascus. And what we also need to see because we must not just see his dominion as something that benefits us. You must see his dominion in terms of our Savior receiving his due reward. Right? Uh, as a man, he suffered. He suffered in unspeakable ways for our sake. Unspeakable ways, in ways that we will never, never even understand for all eternity. As the wrath of all of God's elect was poured upon him on that cross. But God is not unjust, is he? And God rewards Jesus. God rewards Jesus for it. Consider Philippians 2, 6 through 11, speaking of Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant who was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Okay, God the son takes on the form of a servant, a man, and was obedient to death. Now what is his reward? The, the, the text continues in verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, God, our God, was not unjust in forgetting what Jesus did for us and his obedience. You remember, he was obedient unto death. God rewarded this obedience. For his people, the man Jesus suffered tremendously. But what has God done? He has highly exalted this Jesus to put him on heaven's throne. What did Jesus say in Luke 24? Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and what? To enter into his glory, meaning his exaltation. And with all that, then, you find the interpretive keys for Psalm 110, verse 1. That David's Lord is the Son of God, uh, who is divine, but has taken on a human nature. He is the Son of God in divinity and the Son of David in humanity. He has been exalted for his suffering, seated on the throne, and now has total dominion over all things. Not just as God, but as the God-man. And God says Jesus will rule and he will make all of his enemies his footstool. And with that then, let's consider the extent of Jesus' dominion, as I said I would under this heading. It is over all things, not just the church. And we have to be clear on that. Verse 2 of Psalm 110, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Where is he ruling? He's ruling in the midst of his enemies, isn't he? And then verses 5 and 6. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads or leaders over many countries. Christ's dominion is over all kings and all nations. Uh, what of Psalm 2 verse 8 which we sang? What did Jehovah say to Jesus? Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the how many parts of the earth? the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. He possesses all the ends of the earth. You can think of it this way. Has Jesus not asked the Father this? Yes. And so he has been given the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's why he says to go into every nation, to make disciples and baptize them. Why? Because the uttermost parts of the earth have been given to him. And so that you know that Jesus has power over all things, I want you to consider 1 Corinthians 15, 
25 through 27, which proves it by showing there's one exception to his dominion, which says, For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith, all things are put under him, it is manifest or evident that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. What's the extent of Christ's dominion, of the God-man's dominion? All things save one, God, the Father, or God, who is uh, um, not under his feet. And that's how you can prove the extent of his dominion. How far does it go? Everything that is not God is under the feet of Jesus Christ. And all that, then, as you think on that, think of all that plagues the church. Think of all that plagues your soul. What are the three great enemies that you face? Right? You have the world, you have the flesh, you have the devil. These three great enemies, are they not Christ's great enemies as well? And what do you read? What do you know? They're all under his feet. And they're all being conquered. And so shall we fear anything then, beloved, when our Savior is our Lord over all things for our sake? Will he not deal with all that plagues us by his power, even as he dealt with Saul on that road to Damascus? Do they have, in other words, do any of your enemies have power over Jesus? Or does Jesus have power over them? You know, once, only once, for a time that we call his humiliation, our Savior, your Savior, was brought low under the world, under the flesh, and under the devil. But God has reversed all of that, hasn't he? He has utterly reversed it. Now it is Jesus who is bringing them low, conquering. And it is the sympathy of Christ married to his dominion that cheers the Christian church. As our Savior, you think of it, suffered under our enemies for a time. He understands what it is like for you to suffer, doesn't he? And he is drawing you to that, in that, to himself. He says, not only do I know your suffering, not only am I sympathetic to it because I once suffered, but I also have all power over it. And you can trust that I sympathize with you and will do what is right and best for you. Not that these things are frustrating me, but that I rule over them all. Do the nations trouble you? He says, fear not. The nations that rage against me must be wise and kiss the sun lest they perish in the way. Do your sins trouble you today? He says, fear not. For I who suffered for your sin have conquered sin and the grave. Do sinners mock and torment you? He says, fear not. I endured the contradiction of sinners and I have power over them all. Does the devil plague you with his fiery darts? He says, fear not, for I was tempted by that devil and I vanquished him on the cross. He is now my devil. That is why over and over again, what are the two words the Savior is in the habit of saying? Fear not. What did he say in the revelation to John? He said, while John is exiled in Patmos, suffering for being an apostle, what does he say to him? Fear not. Why? I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Revelation 1, 17 through 18. Do you see that this is the mediator speaking? I was dead. Now I am alive. And I have the very keys of hell and of death. And he says, Fear not. What else does he say in the, uh, in the Gospels? Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not. All throughout the Scripture, he says. <coughs> well, I've gone a bit long on this point, but I think it's things worthy of meditation. Verse 2 then says, Jehovah will send forth the rod of thy strength, speaking of Christ, out of Zion. The rod of thy strength, um, boys and girls, that's a projection of the king's power. That's a projection of uh, the king's power. You know, military folks, I remember this during um, you know, the, one of the Iraqi wars, we'd always talk about the projection of the military's power, how the military can project power from countless thousands of miles away with all kinds of weaponry. Well, that's what's in view here. 
the projection of Christ's power. The projection of Christ's power that out of Zion will come the rod of his strength. And so two questions arise from the text. Where is it projected from, this power? And how is it projected? Do you know where the power is projected from? Out of Zion, meaning the church. That makes sense as you recognize how his power is projected. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5 For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. This is how, through the church, Jesus Christ uh, projects His power. He says, Our mighty weapons that He blesses are the means of grace most especially the word of God in prayer. Boys and girls, what is the word of God called in the scripture? It is called the sword of the Lord, isn't it? And prayer pleads with Christ as the Lord of hosts. And if you look at the book of the Acts, right, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, you see that when Christ goes and has his dominion, right, this is when he sends the Holy Spirit down later uh, at Pentecost. And then you see through what means does the church utterly explode on the face of the earth? to primarily the word of God in prayer, isn't it? Thousands are converted. Why? Because out of Zion, Christ is projecting the rod of his strength through the means of grace. These are the mighty weapons the church used to explode across the earth because Christ exercises power through that. And that's what we ought to be about, friends, isn't it? This is the way Christ projects his power. That's a neglected truth today. And that's why you see, especially in our time and place, the church has been quite powerless, quite powerless for quite some time. But what is it that has always shaken the nations? It is the faithful preaching of God's word. It was at the preaching of Jonah that Nineveh turned. And behold, what did Christ say? One greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Jonah is here. No wonder it was at the preaching of men like like Luther and Calvin and Knox and Whitfield, that nations turned through the preaching of God's word. And it's no wonder that it is during our time when the means of grace are despised by Zion, that nations are turning away from God as men in the pulpit are amusing goats on stages. But what we do see here, though, is there's a promise that for a time there are times of decline. But Jesus is subduing the world to himself, and he will usher in, in revival and reformation, preaching and prayer. When, God's, when you see God's people gathering to pray, you know that the Lord is going to work in a mighty way. But until we do so, you're not going to see that happen. But, but, he rules over all things, and he will bring these things to come to pass. He will subdue the world to himself, and he is even now, by our backsliding, working all things for our good. But our responsibility is not to be backsliders and to reform our churches and our lives to his word. Well, that is bleeding over into our second heading, that his mediatorial dominion is for the church. And this head, and I think you've already heard the answer to the question, so maybe you can reflect on it. We're going to answer the simple question, why does Christ rule over all things? Why has he been given dominion? Well, it is for the sake of his church. It is for his church. Verse 3 says, and we'll consider that broadly here. Verse 3 says, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Christ, one of his foremost exercises of his power out of Zion, is to make believers. To make believers, to make converts, to make a willing people where there once was not a willing people. Why? Because all men are born, what? Rebels. Rebels against God. We're not born a willing people, friends. Christ exercises his power not just to cast down rebels, but think of what a king he is, what a gracious king he is, but to save and forgive rebels. See, this is, this is the most adorable, the most lovely king of all, who not only uses his power to cast down but he also uses his power to forgive those who don't, do not deserve forgiveness. Born as we are into the kingdom of sin and Satan, we come into this world despising God and we despise his Christ. Jesus said what? And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. 
in John 5.40. That's how we are, right? We are rebels. We despise God. There is none good. No, not one. We've all turned aside. That's the truth. So how is it that a man can be saved? It is only because the mediator has power over the human heart. And Christ has been given the rod of his power to subdue his people. Think of your own conversion if you are old enough to be conscious of it. I know some of you boys and girls are not old enough to maybe remember when you came to the Lord or the Lord drew near to you. But if you do remember, you remember his word pricked your heart. The sword of the Lord cut you to the quick, didn't it? You saw what? Your heart was cut. You saw your sinfulness. You saw hell as your just reward looming before you. But you also saw Jesus Christ beckon you to find refuge under his wings. And he said, I will give you clemency if you come to me. You heard him speak words like these from the scripture. Come to me, O thou so weary of sin. If you come to me, I will in no wise cast you away. What happened next? Were you dragged to him kicking and screaming? No. Did you say, I don't want you, Jesus. Just stop tugging at me. Were you coerced by him? No. What his power did is it overcame your heart and its sinful resistance. And it made you willing, as Psalm 110 says, or 2 says, You know, the caricature, or three, rather, the caricature of Calvinism, of the doctrines of grace, is men are dragged into salvation against their will. No, like wild beasts, right, being dragged away in a net. No, what what happens is Christ's Holy Spirit changes our will by his power to make us a willing people in the day of his power. He says, right, you heard, believer, you said, he said to you, bow before me, thy Lord and thy God, but also I will be thy savior. What did you do? You did so willingly and with great joy. You saw his power. You saw his grace. You saw his love. You saw his beauty. And you said, one thing I know, all my life I have been blind to this Jesus, but now I see him. I see my sin. I see my rebellion. I see my, I see hell. But now I see Jesus. In love, he was crucified for sinners. He was crucified for me. He, he graciously offers himself. He says, now come, take, buy without price. And I was made willing, sweetly so, by his power. What a king this is. You know, one of my dearest brothers in the faith, I always think on him because he was there for me when I was converted. I didn't know any other Christians. Um, you know, he was, he was a member of, uh, you might know this uh, somewhat, it's like a denomination, Calvary Chapel. And uh, they, he, was, he subscribed to Arminianism quite a bit and was very set against Calvinism. Um, and I was still discovering these things. And years later, he came to Texas uh, and we visited together and we had a friendly debate, as we often did, on the doctrines of grace. He was still unconvinced, but as he left, after he left my house, he sort of turned as I was about to close the door and he said, But you know what, Rom? The day that Jesus Christ showed himself to me, there was no way I could tell him no. That's how it is when Jesus comes to you. He changes your sinful, rebellious heart. You know, one day his name was a curse word to you. One day you just didn't have a care. People talk about this Jesus and you think they're fanatics or something. And that is, then he changes your will. And he makes you willing and you see his glory, you see his beauty, and you are made willing to come to Jesus, even though another person sitting right next to you looks at you like you're a a crazy person. They heard the same word. It's because his power came into your heart. Well, the willingness, though, believer, of his people doesn't just end for conversion. In other words, you are never to say, well, I'm willing to come to Jesus for salvation but now made unwilling to follow him all the days of my life. The word willing in our psalm is actually the same Hebrew word for a free will offering. And so that makes you think of Romans 12 verse 1, where Paul says, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, right? That's that free will offering, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You are to be made willing. You are made willing to be a, a, a willing follower of the Lord where your whole life 
Not just coming to him to, to punch a ticket, so to speak, to heaven. But your whole life is consecrated to the Lord. And you are willing to follow him wherever he goes. He says, follow me. And you say, I am willing to do so. Even if it causes me to die to self, as it will cause me to die to self. I say, nevertheless, my whole life now is a free will offering to the Lord. When Christ's power comes into your heart, it makes you willing. And so, are you a willing people? That's the question. Are you a willing people? You know, if you're not a believer, you need to come to this Jesus Christ. Because otherwise, what's going to happen is, this Jesus, who is such a kind king to his enemies, will crush you underfoot. As Psalm 2 says, unless you run to Him, run to His arms for forgiveness and clemency, which He is offering to you right now. But the offer will not be there forever, especially on the day you die. You will have to give an account to God. <coughs> so be made willing by His power. Come to Him. He freely offers clemency and forgiveness for your treason. But if you are in Christ, are you a willing people? Are you willing to live for Him? If the Word of God, if He says, this do, are you going to say, are you going to be like so many who departed from the Lord and no longer followed Him? Or are you going to be a willing people all the days of your life? Will you say, I desire to live a holy life for Him? And what you have to see in our psalm says is that is a beautiful thing. Make the calculation, Right? Holiness is beautiful. That's how it's always framed in the Bible. The beauties of holiness. The beauty of holiness. So how does that make sin? What does that make your sin? It makes it dark and it makes it nasty. Grotesque. Holiness is beautiful. Though this is why our will needs to be subdued because the natural man loves the fleeting pleasures of sin and not holiness and righteousness. And so we have to be subdued. What you need to do is you need to say from the heart, I want to follow Jesus, my Savior King, and desire what He desires in. And that's why He has given you a petition to pray what? Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Who answers the prayer in a way? You can think of the King who has all power, and He will send the rod of His power into your heart to subdue it so that you will do His will. And as we need grace to be holy, verse 4 consoles us, doesn't it? That joined to Messiah the Prince is his priesthood. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. His is a royal priesthood. A mediatorial, that's where that word mediatorial comes from. Mediatorial dominion for his people. Now, our recent sermons in Hebrews have covered the verse extensively, so I won't say much more of it here. I'll refer you to those sermons, Hebrews 5 and 7. But in view of our theme, I want you to think, as we've meditated on this, how terrible, how terrible it would be if Christ was only our king and not our priest. Would he be able to forgive us of our transgressions against him? Justice would demand that you be put down. And I be put down too. He would have to destroy you. But here our king, as our priest, himself went under the sword of God's wrath to extend mercy and forgiveness to his subjects. And now at God's right hand, he hasn't stopped being a priest. He intercedes for us. He gives us grace. He applies his blood that was shed once to cover our faults so that in Christ, in every way, in both power and mercy, God is for us. You have such a complete Savior, don't you, friends? In every possible way. There is no possible way for His people to, to, to be lost. His two offices are brought together in one person so we can be saved to the uttermost, so that we, He can convert us, His enemies, into saints, and He can conquer our hearts. Satan cannot have us, can he? Christ prays for us as a priest. Satan desires to sift us, but Christ our priest ever stands before God so that Satan cannot have us. Hell cannot have us because Christ our King died for us in our place. And, and, and Christ the King has said the gates of hell shall not prevail. In fact, how does he build his church? He plunders Satan's kingdom as our King. He powerfully converts their wills and applies his blood for clemency. 
And this was prophesied in Zechariah 6, 12-13. Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now what do you think of when you think on that? Don't you think of Jesus Christ saying, I will build my church, and he shall grow up out of his place, he shall build the temple of the Lord, even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And here it is. He shall be a priest upon his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Zechariah 6, 12 through 13. Here's the answer to the question. Why does Jesus have mediatorial dominion over all things? So that he can build his church to plunder Satan and hasten the kingdom of glory and that eternal state. That's the eternal kingdom, right? The kingdom of glory. When we pray, thy, will, uh, thy kingdom come. Hasten, O Lord, the conquest of the earth. But we must also be clear, you know, some men have the wrong idea of what we mean when we say Jesus has mediatorial dominion over all things. As mediator king, he is over all things, but his mediation is only for his church. Overall, for his church, that's vital to know. It's a vital point of doctrine. If you can just remember that, you will do well. He does not mediate for devils. He does not mediate for reprobates. He does not mediate for nations. He only mediates for his church, but his power overall was given for his church. You can use Ephesians 1, 19 through 23 to teach you this, and that's where the interpretation is found. Uh, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power? Listen to words like this in that text, to us word who believe, right? His power is for believers according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him on his own right hand in the heavenly places. If you open your Bible, you're going to see how many times that theme comes forth. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. You see that total dominion belongs to Jesus and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be what? The head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Christ was made head, leader, king over all things for the sake of who? His church. What was Christ's promise? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Why does the promise stand? Because Christ is mediatorial king over all nations. As Isaiah 33.22 says, the Lord is our king and he will save us. God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, what? Both Lord and Christ. Acts 2.36. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Whether it be nations, devils, or kings, he rules over all as king for his bride's sake. Now, this does have implications politically, as Psalm 2 says, and we sang. What does it say? Starting in verse 10, Psalm 2. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Here's the blessing, though. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Notice what the psalm does not say. It does not say, kiss the Father. It does not even say, kiss Jehovah. It says, Kiss the Son. All kings must bow down before the mediator. Why? It's the same reason. For the sake of his church. That's where Isaiah 49 comes in, right? And kings shall be, speaking to the church, thy nursing fathers and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth and lick up the dust to thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord. For they shall not be ashamed that weighed for me. Jesus is going to make kings and queens the church's nursing parents. And if you look on history, you're going to see this has come to pass and it will continue to come to pass. What did Jesus do in the Reformation? When all the earth sat under the darkness of the papacy and it seemed like the light of the gospel was about to be quenched. And you know the papacy had dominion over the kings of Europe, didn't they? Uh, didn't he? Antichrist. What did Jesus, though, use to protect his fledgling church from the Pope's wrath? The princes of Europe became nursing fathers 
and the gospel shone brightly because the papacy couldn't touch the church because the civil magistrate protected Luther and others. And how did that happen though? How did the princes of Europe become nursing fathers? When out of Zion, the rod of Christ's power, preaching and prayer converted magistrates to Christ and now they had a heartfelt care for the gospel. And they were made willing in the day of Christ's power. And you saw the gospel begin to cover the earth once again. And Jesus will do it again when magistrates' hearts are converted. It'll take them, though, desiring to kiss the Son and to serve Him in the beauties of holiness. And when they do, and they are converted, which is why the Reformed Church has always had a care to preach to magistrates, they will say, what? Take all of me, Jesus Take even my office, Lord, for use it for the sake of thy church. We will even support the church because your kingdom matters so greatly to us. And when the the people of a nation are converted, and this is why the primary place for the health of a nation is the church, when the people are converted, they will cry out saying to Jesus, we will have this man rule over us. And they will install godly rulers who serve Christ. But until that happens... Well, our duty is as a church is to keep preaching the gospel and preaching the duty that all magistrates have to kiss the sun lest they perish. Now, just another distinction here because people misunderstand. We're not saying that magistrates become church officers in the church. That would violate the spirituality of the church. But civil magistrates for the church, they serve the church. They serve Christ as nursing fathers and mothers to protect, defend, and promote the church. Okay, we'll have to leave that there because time is slipping away. And briefly, somewhat briefly, we'll consider the last heading, which is that his kingship is unstoppable. At the end of the psalm, this cheers us, beloved. Verses 5 through 6 shows us the victory of Jesus. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. I have preached this before, not this text, I don't think, but I have preached on the simple word shall. That is a promise. How many shalls are there? Shall strike, shall fill, shall judge, shall wound, shall drink, shall lift up the head. These are promises. This is an assured victory of our Savior. Heads of state who refuse to kiss the sun will be wounded and tossed aside. Jesus will drink of the brook in the way. What that means is uh, he's not going to stop and linger in a place. He has much to conquer and he goes out indefatigable. Revelation 6.2 And I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him. This is Jesus. And he went forth what? Conquering and to conquer. This is what it means. He shall drink of the brook in the way and then he will go conquering. He shall lift up the head, meaning what? His engagements will bring him triumph, not defeat. Lifting up the head is a sign of the victor. Lowering your head, boys and girls, as you probably well know, is a sign of shame and defeat. In other words, he's going to conquer hearts and he will have a continual flow of converts through the Great Commission. You can return to verse 3 briefly. When he, it speaks of us being made willing, it concludes with, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. That's a difficult text in the Hebrew, but the sense of it is something like this. Just as the dew is new every morning, so too are the converts who are coming to Christ. There's going to be an ongoing and unceasing new birth coming out of Zion's womb, out of the church. More and more will daily enlist under Christ's banner, being made willing, almost like a volunteer army of men, women, and even children, seeking the glory of Christ to advance His marvelous kingdom, to see many nations and peoples subdued to the Savior that they would praise Him. Beloved, in all this, what you must see is the Great Commission is unstoppable, and Christ's conquering of nations through the gospel will succeed. If you read the Great Commission in view of all of this theology, you would see it in that way. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power or authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach how many nations? All nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. What are you to teach them? 
Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And what is one thing that Jesus has taught us to teach? He said, teach them all things whatsoever. Observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And what is one of those all things? Kiss the Son, lest you perish. So we go out, church, confident, no matter how badly the world rages against Christ. And Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 are not naive, if I may use that word. They show us that opposition to Christ is present, and we must expect it. But He is the victor. And through Him we will do valiantly, as Psalm 108, verse 13, we read a couple of months ago, says. And most of all, knowing that Jesus is our mediator king over all, is our great joy, right? Because high and lifted up at his throne. Now, what did he say to you in the Great Commission? Lo, I am with you always. I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. He who died for us now lives for us and lives with us and in us. He who possesses the very keys of death and hell, he says he is for you. And he is with you. You have a perfect, complete Savior who truly now you see more and more. As the Bible says something very simple and profound, the depth of it. And it says he saves to the uttermost them that come to God through him or by him. You see how that is. All power, all authority, and, and the priesthood at the same time. Over all things for your sake, believer. So this new year, friends, believer... Interpret all world news through Psalm 110. Every bit of it. Whatever it seems like out there, Christ is conquering. He lifts some nations high. He brings some nations low. Our nation has been in rebellion against Christ's rule for quite some time. Do not be surprised when you open the newspaper and you find his wrath is kindled against it. I preach this in Romans 1. All this unrest, right? All this perversion, all of it is actually Christ's displeasure on the nation. It is his handing us over to depravity is what Romans says. And so when you see all of this evil in our land, it's actually a sign that his wrath is being kindled and that he is not absent from the throne, but he is actually upon it. Because he is handing nations over to their defiance. Because things like homosexuality and transgenderism, all that stuff never brings blessing. It only brings a curse. And so this is Jesus with the rod of his power in heaven's throne saying, you rebel against me, I will hand you over to your sin. And that's how we interpret the newspaper. It is proof that he is on the throne. When there's war and rumors of war, it is Christ's displeasure. That is kindled because nations refuse to kiss the sun. So let us labor then, not for the kingdoms of this world, but for our kingdom, the kingdom of grace. That is how this nation will be healed. It's not that you are not to press for wholesome laws or whatnot in the commonwealth. You should, and you should support those who will do that. But our hope is in the gospel, which is how Christ's power goes forth out of Zion. But friends, before we tell nations to kiss the sun, let us make sure we are kissing the sun each and every day ourselves. Will he answer our prayers to heal our land and to heal our churches? Will he bless our preaching if we are in rebellion ourselves? No way. Why be incensed at the Supreme Court or our president or our Congress if you are not willing to submit to King Jesus? Well, Beloved, today begins Anno Domini 2023. May it be to you a year of greater submission to your king. May you be a willing people for King Jesus and may his present, not future, present mediatorial reign fill you with the greatest of hope and assurance in him. And may Psalm 110 give you patience, comfort, and hope to endure whatever comes this year. Amen. May God bless our meditation on our psalm. If able, please rise for prayer. Oh, our gracious God and Father, we bless you, O God, that you are not unjust 
and you have rewarded Christ our Lord for his suffering for our sake. We thank you that this precious Savior is also made King of the nations for our sake. Oh, how you must love your church, Father, to give us such a great Savior King. We bless you that Jesus Christ is King over all for the sake of his church. And we pray, Father, that you would make many, many a willing people in the day of his power, that our Jesus would have many praise him and bless him for the travail of his sufferings. Father, we pray, O God, that if any here are not yet made willing to submit to Jesus Christ, today would be the day when his power fills their heart by the Holy Spirit and smashes their stony heart, their stiff neck, and causes them to flee and see the beauty of Christ. O Father, in the preaching of the word, may you persuade us who believe that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Persuade us, O God, by showing us that Christ is the ruler over all these things so that the love of God seated on heaven's throne will never be separated from us. Father, bless your people now as they have sat under your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.